and welcome to Cinemaker's Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 27, Side Effects from 2013. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this movie I saw four years ago, and I remembered none of it. And I was stunned how little I remembered of it. But more importantly, Tobin, this is the last one that you hadn't seen, right, of Soderbergh's work? That's right. That's right. I'm not all the way through the Nick yet, but in terms of the features, yeah, this is the last one I'd not seen. Yep. And what did you think of it? I think there are missteps in the first act that sort of throw the rest of it off the rails for me. I like where it ends up much better than where it starts. I had been looking forward to this movie. I think I'd talked about in a few recent episodes about how much I like this movie, apparently just based on vague recollections of nothing. But in that first probably 45 minutes or so, I was like, why do I like this movie? Because it's like slow and it's boring and it's like methodical. It's not boring, but like methodical. And it's just like, where is this building to? And it becomes very procedural. And then all of a sudden, there's just twists on twists on twists. And I don't know why it works for me so well. I really liked where this wound up and it made me, the craziness of the back half made me sort of forgive the first half. And I don't think this is his best work, but I really, really liked it. Yeah, I also liked it. This is only the second time I've seen it. And I had the same reaction as you, Joey, where I was sort of like, the first time watching this, like, I don't know if I like this. Like, where's this going? It's like, and then it sort of changes movies almost at one point and becomes a little more of something else uh, along the way. And, and I actually felt like that first act, um, while it might not be the tightest parts of this movie, I feel like it pays off by the end because it sort of comes back around and you see more of what actually went on. But yeah, I, I enjoyed watching it again this time. I also remembered hardly anything except for the end, I guess. But I don't remember how we got there and all of the sort of you know, particular details. And I certainly didn't remember how good Jude Law was. And that, you know, reminded me like he can lead a movie and, you know, what's he been up to and stuff. So I think there's some really good performances here, um, as well as the story and, and the structure. The craziest bit of trivia that I found about this movie, and maybe any movie we've done here so far, is that Jude Law said that he was very self-conscious about this movie because very insecure because this was his first performance where he was a husband and a father like he is in real life and his first role where he uses normal accent and did not have any hair or makeup change considering how nervous i guess he was to do this it doesn't come across he's so good in this mr young pope himself yeah he's really good he for me redeems what the fact that he was the weak link in contagion for me as far as the sort of stories storylines go and i think that yeah, there's something kind of very vulnerable about him. And, you know, when the movie makes its turn or a series of turns and it moves toward the end, you know, it ends up, ends up being more double indemnity, right? It ends up being more sort of vintage noir kind of. And he plays that that kind of lead really well, I think. I believe him when he's maybe going a little over the top or, I mean, a little crazy, you know, and I believe him when he's his life is falling apart. And I believe it, it, as he sort of pieces it back together, I, I think he's I think he was really well cast in this movie. Yeah, he's got an interesting combination in this movie of being this foreign everyman in a way like he's a foreigner so he's sort of like an outsider already but then like he's just a working shrink you know he's just like an everyman like trying to make a living but i think it's interesting how 
simple he plays it. Um, also, his character for a lot of this movie is just caught off guard so much that he's just playing that really well for a while. And then it pays off that he starts becoming, you know, Mr. Conspiracy Theory and goes through a few more changes and then becomes sort of like really confident in himself that, that he can, you know, sort of survive this whatever he's gotten himself into. I was surprised uh, at his versatility. Because he kind of plays a lot of different roles in this. He plays like husband and father. Well, he barely plays father. He's not a very good father in this movie. But he plays husband and father. He plays psychiatrist or psychologist. He plays detective, sort of. He also kind of plays lawyer. He kind of plays the fool. I mean, like, there's so many different things to him, and it doesn't feel like his movie, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, this is his movie. Yeah, and that's really my big gripe with this with this movie. I understand that there's something kind of cool about the fact that it turns out to be his movie, but I would have appreciated the movie tipping its hat a little bit sooner. It, I would appreciate um, starting with him a little more, maybe because I don't think Rooney Mara is very good in the movie, and, and I think that's either the way the part is written, or it's just, from my money she was just not cast well but i found myself i think the movie expected me to care about her in ways that i didn't so that then when it was revealed that i shouldn't care about her as much that that would sort of either shock me or make me feel satisfied in some way but i just didn't care and so when those turns happened it left me even more cold to her which i don't think is what the movie wanted so about Rooney Mara, i don't know how much drama there was here but apparently they had cast Blake Lively in this role. And then the production studio found out that they cast Blake Lively and pulled out. And then they replaced her with Rooney Mara, who had to drop out of Zero Dark Thirty to be in this movie. And then they were, when they replaced Blake Lively with Rooney Mara, the production studio came back on board and they were able to make the movie. That's crazy to me. There's also she, she, talk... Wait, hold on. Hold the hold. Oh, the yeah, phone. okay. Rewind she, she, to Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> yeah. Who is she supposed to be in Zero Dark Thirty? Jessica Chastain? Wait, that that's the other one, right? Or... No, that's that one. That's impossible. I don't know who she was supposed to play in that. I, I can't think of what other role she would have had in that movie, and the thought of her anchoring Zero Dark Thirty, I just... I don't see it. I think she can be really good in things. I just think that not everybody has figured out how to use her yet. And even even Soderbergh, I think. I, I would rather have seen Blake Lively in this movie, to be quite, quite frank. I actually kind of... I buy her in this. I mean, I'm not sure if she's giving her best performance. I haven't seen a whole lot of her work, even though I, I like her as an actress. But I feel like, you know, when the first act of this movie is about the depressed housewife with the husband who just came out of prison because he embezzled money or insider trading, you know? So, like, I, I was... Don't bury the lead. Husband Channing Tatum uh, hashtag magic of this art. Exactly. But, you know, if that was what the movie was gonna be, I was on board for that be honest with you like I'm, I'm actually glad it morphed into sort of like a quasi hitchcock type of thing thriller gaslight thing but i don't know like i i actually bought her with the the panicking and the depression and the anxiety and and all that kind of stuff you know i'm not saying again that it's like oscar worthy or anything but i really felt it was acceptable like, the list of who almost played this part is, like, crazy. Like So it's not just Blake Lively was cast, but they also, Soderbergh wanted to cast Lindsay Lohan in this role. No. And he auditioned her three times. Whoa! And then something that we saw twice in Zack Attack, and I feel like one other time on one of our shows, Mike. Maybe a Shia or something. No, it was more recent than that, because it was after we did the Zack Attack episodes. Producers said, you can't cast her 
her legal troubles are going to cost us too much money. And so he was turned away. I might have even been for this. Like, I feel like he wanted to cast her for something in this as well. Like, this is the fourth movie. It was Charlie St. Cloud, and it was some other movie right around that time for Zeph. And then I think there's one here, and then this one, that, like, Lindsay Lohan almost had so many major movie roles that just her legal problems were like, well, you can't do this. Sorry. I mean, I think Soderbergh likes a challenge. I think sometimes he takes on actors. I mean, look at, you know, Andy McDowell and Jennifer Lopez exhibits A and B, you know, very early in his career. Actors who had to date exhibited more limited range and perhaps afterwards exhibited more limited range that he was able to find a part for and build a movie around. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what he do with a Lindsay Lohan. I think it's inspired casting. Like, it's a cool idea and everything, but I don't know if it would have paid off on screen because, like, it. it I just feel like she's kind of had, like, public mental health issues in her life, too. So I don't know if, for me, watching that on screen, how I would feel about that, to be quite honest with you. But maybe you. that's why it would work. I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, maybe that's why she was thought of, but it just doesn't seem like that is appropriate to the degree of where it's like Channing Tatum was a stripper. So, I mean, you know, we can make a movie with a real-life stripper as a stripper. I don't know how it would have worked if we had, like, a real-life person with mental health issues playing a person with mental health issues that was only doing it as, like, it, that isn't the theme of right. the movie, you know? Like, it's revealed right, right. that she's lying the whole time. Like, I don't know if I'm down with that. Not to rain on that parade or anything. No, Sorry. no, no. But, no, like, no, I no. think it would have been, like, because it would have been her choice. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been... It's not like he's like, hey, surprise, you're in a movie where you're actually, like, not crazy. You're just a psychopath. Like, I, I don't know. I think it's, uh, you know, that sliding doors effect. Like, I, I would have liked to see this with a lot of other people. The other short list of people that are considered, Emily Blunt, Olivia Wilde, Imogen Poots, Alice Eve, Amanda Seyfried, and Michelle Williams. Oh, um, Michelle Williams. So. Yes. Yes, oh, yes, I yes. see that immediately. Yes. Here's what I think it is. Here's what I think it is. I think for me, Rooney Mara is a really opaque actress. There's a there's a real sense that there are barriers up that you just cannot get through. And, and I think that works really well in some roles. I think that, you know, whether, whether the movie wants us to believe that there are barriers that she's put up herself— and, and ideally, that should work here. We should think in the first half of the movie that here's a woman who is so depressed that— She's sort of incapable of, you know, she's on the verge of suicide and, and then she's dealing with all these uh, medications she keeps being given. But for me, I think if the movie wanted me to connect with her, I think she's not the right choice. I think someone who is who maybe could play a little more fragile, like for me, when she's being fragile here, she sort of gets a little, she kind of blends into the furniture in the movie instead of standing out. And I, I yeah, I just, I was not on, on board with her. My defense of that is that she's trying to blend into the furniture. She's trying to pass as this normal person, right? And I don't know if that's a good defense or not. She, she's not, though. She's. We learn later in the movie, she's tr- she's done all this stuff to stand out so everyone will corroborate her story that she's having these, these problems. Yeah, she's kind of like creating an alibi for herself. Yeah, all the way attention. along. But to the world, I mean, to, to her select group, sure. To her three or four people, sure. But to the world, to her mother, she wants to... That's not her mother. That's his mother. It's even more so that, that she's going to be on... Oh, and out is Channing's mother? Yeah, yes. Yeah. And even Zeta yes. Jones said, we didn't look at you, we looked at the world, right? So like that's yeah. what they were considering yeah. the whole time was like the grand play that everyone could see. And if you're right, if that was the choice that they made, if they're playing that game, Joey, I think that they made the wrong choice. 
that's fine. I mean, I, I don't love this movie enough to defend it. Like, you know what? I, like, I don't want to... I don't know that she's great in this. I think that I, I really like this because she gets her comeuppance. You know what I mean? Like, she's not a likable character. I like that you see that she, you know played the game and somehow managed to murder her husband and get out of it and then also set up Catherine Zeta-Jones to be this multi-millionaire due to insider trading. The same thing, again, financials, which we'll get into, Soderbergh's favorite, but the same right, thing right. that put her husband in jail, she helps Catherine Zeta-Jones get rich off of and then she uses her comeuppance and then like, it gets her arrested and then she gets like what's coming to her. Like, it's just like this beautiful domino effect of like, oh, she's like this grandmaster chess player able to play every piece and then she doesn't see the last one coming. And that, I think because she's not likable, like she's likable enough to me that I'm rooting for her once I figure out her plan, but not likable enough that I don't want to see her get what's coming to her. Yeah. Ultimately, she works at by the end because it's turning, it turned out that she's just like a villain, you know, like she plays the villain well by the end for me, you know, when you realize that it was just like this whole master plan and stuff. And so by that point, by the end in general, everything for me comes together to a point where I'm very satisfied. I'm, you know, that I feel like this, this worked pretty well. Yeah. I, I think my notes uh, I spend the first half of the movie making notes like, I'm not feeling her. I don't get this. I'm not interested in this. She's not connecting with me. I don't care about her. <laughs> and then about halfway through the movie, as things begin to change, even before we know that she's actually making it up, I have a note that talks about the scene where Jude Law goes to see the prosecutor and he has tricked Rooney Mara into giving away that she's making it up. He tells her he's giving her a drug that's going to make her tell the truth, right? And she falls asleep like on the drug. It's an you know IV drug. And then it turns out it was saline solution. Proves that she was acting. And that scene, I think, is great. I think the movie really starts crackling there. And I didn't take another note the rest of the movie. The second half of this movie would rank in the top probably 10 Soderbergh movies. But because of the first half, for me, this falls into the bottom half of the movies that we've seen. I feel like because of that shift in direction that the movie takes is what with helps pull off that, that first act. It's interesting how we're sort of like on opposite ends there. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, th- I agree with Mike. It's like because I think you have to be sort of lulled into that state like i agree that the first act isn't good but then suddenly you know i love a lot of his movies but i feel like this more than others and maybe this is because it's well made or maybe it's because it's poorly made i'm not sure but this more than a lot of the other ones made me want to watch it again immediately as soon as i finish it to sort of see how the things line up i don't know if that's the sort of like say like oh look look how good look how well everything is set up or i still don't see that coming and that that's not you know it's not presented right. Yeah, it's so funny because I finished this movie and took the DVD and, you know, you guys know I have a way too many DVDs in my house. And then I have a box where I keep the ones that I kind of want to hang on to, but I never want to watch again. Where like a lot of those Nicolas Cage ones from Cage Club that we did that were Hey, now, now, watch what <laughs> They're in the say. box of Cage? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's immediately where I went and put this movie. Really? I was actually yeah. worried watching it a second time that knowing the twist as it were or what you know the series of them that it wasn't gonna be like fun or entertaining or like i was gonna be looking for her tells and it would be too simple or you know too noticeable but i actually this time around i was kind of like wow you know i could see how she's pulling this off just because you know maybe we don't fully buy her as an audience but the jew law character falls for it 100 percent, you know and i buy him a lot too so i feel their dynamic i guess and like i i feel like they work 
off each other to a point that it helps the movie work better. Yeah, that's a good point. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. I want to talk about Channing in this movie because we're going to get to this eventually, probably in 2019 or 2020 for uh, Magic Mike's because there's so much between where we are and where we're going to get. He doesn't do a ton in this. I obviously wasn't watching this movie for him, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, like, let me watch him. I mean, he's got a pretty gruesome death. That's kind of cool. But like, other than that, I think it's sort of for the third time he's collaborating with Soderbergh, especially coming off how magic pun intended, he was uh-huh. in Magic Mike, he's just sort of like a guy in this. I was just sort of disappointed because I was hoping for more, because when I had seen this the first time, just like Haywire, I didn't know who he was. Here, I was just like, we know that he has more charm and personality. I know that's not the kind of guy that he is, but I, I was a little disappointed in him, especially considering it's the third time he's worked with Soderbergh. I kind of felt it as sort of um it's like a shortcut role in the sense that his character just is like a representation of something like you know he's handsome he's rich he's like this ideal thing for her but then it turns out all to sort of be a fraud like he ends up going to jail for insider trading and you know they lose their fortune and and all of that so I feel like as a presence he works as just like this immediate sort of like I get I get what he's about like I buy him as sort of a wolf of wall street or a boiler room boy or one of those things or but like it's a shame that he doesn't have more to do in the movie except like wear that hat really well uh, you know <laughs> like he should have taken her out dancing for a scene that would have been cool or more more maybe something more with her, his mom or something but it's weird that he's not in this a lot and he is the victim and like a lot of it just sort of centers around him and he's not around What's interesting is you have these two performances that we are – or these two parts. Maybe it's in the writing. These two parts that we are meant to be really connected to to make the second half of the movie work. And one of them is Rooney Mara and the other one is Channing Tatum. And what's funny to me is that in the scenes where Ann Dowd is there, and not just because you know I like her from other things now. I've always been a big fan of hers. But just watching her, she she is, with a few simple gestures and looks, imbues that character with with so much more history and feeling and depth than, than they are able to do. I mean, she has maybe like three lines in the whole movie, right? And it's just sort of, is kind of in the background in a lot of those scenes. But I keep gravitating toward her in those scenes because it feels like a human being. Maybe what it is is that in some ways, the first half of this movie, or maybe the whole thing is a little more about ideas than it is about people, whether those ideas have to do with the pharmaceutical industry or psychiatry or just the idea of, can you make a plot that's, that's this sort of convoluted and but still makes sense and hangs together? And I think that for my money, when the movie centers more on a person, it's better than when it's just about the ideas. I mean, if you need any proof of how good Anne Dowd is, just look at literally any scene from The Leftovers. Like, I agree with you completely. Like, she is so good in this movie. I don't know what the point of this movie was, I don't think. And I think that's sort of... (laughs) It's because it's written by Scott Z. Burns, who did Contagion, and it kind of sort of feels like Contagion in a lot of ways, but also it's not ambitious like Contagion. It feels like it's a takedown of, like, Big Pharma, I guess, and also a takedown, but not really, of white-collar crime. And it's, instead of seeing people who are struggling to have money, it's seeing people who are scamming to get more money. Or, in a similar way, you know, seeing Rooney Mara accustomed to this life of luxury, and then that's taken away from her, and she has to figure out what to do to regain that. It has, like, a few different things it's trying to go for, and I'm not sure, I just don't know what it's actually trying to choose to do. Yeah, I think that might fall into what Tobin was saying as there 
it might be too many ideas here and not enough sort of solid plot or story or focus for that matter like it's not so much a takedown as a fake down because at the end it's not about <laughs> like an indictment of big pharma or you know treating depression seriously it's like about this doctor who lost his credential or his credibility and just had to get it back or something you know like i'm not sure you're right i'm, yeah. I'm not positive of what the overlying meaning is here there's like all these little chances of this movie being about one certain thing overall but i feel like it doesn't quite land on something entirely that yeah it is a little muddled but i think it gets away with it because it like it is a really sort of tight thriller in that second you know second half like it really really like hits it home for me and i don't know sometimes when you stick the landing like that or you know even you know the few innings before the end of the game are really good if the first half or the first three or four innings have just been like you're sitting around eating too many hot dogs um you know that's that's that can still be a lot of fun it could still be a good movie see mike you love sports movies you love sports metaphors <laughs> it's weird like i don't know what to talk about with this movie because like so much of it kind of sort of feels like an episode of like csi or something or like maybe no maybe not csi maybe like law and order. well it's also kind of csi yeah. it's kind of it's kind of csi sort of law and order like do you think it was made to be sort of boring no, no, no. It's it's it is meant to be a puzzle, though. I think that's where all these ideas and the fact that it's it's a very plotty movie as it goes. Like it's all about showing us one thing and then revealing the truth later. And I think maybe part of the reason I'm struggling with it is because I love that kind of stuff. Like this should be right down the middle for me. I like films that deal with perspective and show us events from other sides. And I like noir and I like you know an everyman character who has to kind of who gets like snowed under by evildoers and has to find his way through again. I like all that stuff. I just, I think for me, I think that the a change in the, in, the, in the performance or the casting in the first part or just a shift in focus, just a little bit, I think would have made all that work. But I do think, I do think that what this movie's about is an exercise in style. It's an exercise in what can they get away with. And I think that maybe you could have a nod to it being about Big Pharma or about insider trading, but it seems to me it has less to say about that stuff than it does about can we construct this little puzzle box for you? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's just inherent of these types of films. They're going to have to slow down at certain points, and if they go light on the action and heavy on the drama, it's going to feel like a stretch at times, and yeah. And I also agree with you, Tobin, like it doesn't quite reach the heights of like those classic 50s or even 70s puzzlers, like conspiracy twisters that are that are cool. And like even nowadays, when I think, you know, watching this movie, I was like, you know who might do like a good version of this is like Fincher, David Fincher or something like I oh, thought of him a few yes. times watching this movie, like he could really do a rewrite and find the way to knock this out of the park from, you know, the first pitch <laughs> to keep with the baseball metaphors. Uh, so not that I don't think Soderbergh can handle himself in this. I just, you know, and the more I think about it, it doesn't seem like his mind is entirely here just regarding the last few movies and the tones of those and the way that they felt a little more playful. Like this is really trying to be dark and and serious all throughout. Then when it gets like in the last, you know, third, it gets more playful, not not light. 
but playful. Like the scenes between Rooney Mara and Catherine Zeta-Jones, once it's revealed to us that they're that they're having this love affair, are a little tongue-in-cheek, I think. I mean, they're a little – like Catherine Zeta-Jones is acting pretty arch in this with these glasses that she takes off and with their like extremely open-mouthed kiss. And like it feels a little like they know they're playing in not quite a – not a satire zone, but there's, it, feels, it felt to me like there was a wink to the audience about, you know, like the lesbian black widows. And I think that if the first part of the movie had had, maybe had a little more of that, I don't know. I'm just so much more, you've opened something up to me that maybe it has to do with the tone being too dour in the first third and sort of lightening as it goes, as we realize, oh, this is a game. We're playing a game here. We want to see how this guy gets out of this trap. And I do like the idea of us not knowing a trap's being set. But to do that, I have to believe and be convinced to care about the movie. Let me put it this way. The twists work best if the movie's satisfying up until the twist. If you think about movies that twist at the end that change everything that came before, the ones that I think that work the best are the ones that if the movie had continued as it was, it would have been at least good, maybe not great. And then the twist comes along and you say, oh, he was dead the whole time. And like that changes everything, even though all the emotional beats are there to care about whoever the character is up until that point. And that's where this movie where I see, Joey, what you're saying about what this movie is trying to do. And I just think there are counterexamples for movies that have done that better by making us care more in that first part. And I mean, I completely agree with that. And I don't think this is any great example of like a movie that I love and that I'm going to watch time and again. But I just think for whatever reason, I think it was like the frequency, the ferocity of all of the twists that I agree that up till then, I was just like, I don't know what this is getting at. But then as soon as there's the twist, I guess the first one probably unless there's one before that I'm not remembering, is when he quote unquote drugs her, but he also he just gives her the saline drip, right? And she lies to him. And it's like at that point in the movie where it's like, oh, right, like this is interesting. And I think that just because from there on, there's like something crazy that happens every 10 or 15 minutes that I wish the movie leading up to that point was better or more exciting and more engaging. But it's just that how over the top it becomes, I'm willing to sort of overlook the fact that like without the twist, this wouldn't be a very good movie. Yeah, it's tough because, like you said, Tobin, the twist works best at the end, you know? I still think of Fight Club, like, Joey and I saw that in the theater recently, and I've seen that so many times, and yet, like, it still worked (laughs) at the end just by the the way that film is presented. And the problem here might be that the twist comes too early, and then there are more twists, and maybe one too many turns or something, you know? And that can difficult to manage as a viewer when you're trying to keep up and then suddenly you're behind. I think it works because I become a little more feeling like Jude Law, where it's like, oh no, now I'm lost, and then I'm reoriented at a point where I feel like I'm ahead of the movie, almost, at the end, where it's like, okay, I know that they're lying now, and now they don't know that he's lying, He, d- they don't know he knows that they're lying, and he's playing them, and I'm on his <laughs> side, and I'm with him, and so... For me, it kind of played okay, but I can understand where for some people, like it's it's a little, it gets a little bogged down, and it ex- maybe it expects a little too much from the audience without really deserving it or asking for it properly. Maybe 
Yeah, that that could be. I, 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 and I didn't mean to turn this into a pile on this movie. I didn't hate this movie. I just, I don't, I didn't like it. You know, as I said, my enjoyment has ramped up as it as it went. But I do think that the uh, once again, the uh, apart from the casting of the lead, I think that a lot of the casting in this movie is really good. I think that the supporting parts, from as I say, the prosecutor to the woman who becomes her lawyer to the you know folks at the party that he goes to, is the people that Channing Tatum thinks got him in trouble and got him sent away and. These are all great actors from great things who are, in many cases, New York stage folks who've shown up in this movie. And I and I do think this would be this is a really, really easy movie to make terrible. And the fact that it's not terrible is really good. <laughs> it's just that I think it maybe could have been great. I would love to see the Fincher version of this movie. Mike, I think that's a great suggestion. I'd be very curious to see if he had, you know, another six months, year to develop the script in the direction he would want to go, what he would be able to do with it. And I was actually thinking David Fincher, too. I'm glad you guys said that because when I, I think it was really when Jude Law enters cop mode, sort of, and he becomes like obsessed with that work. Like, I've been thinking, I've only seen Zodiac once. I think I talk about how much I love Zodiac. I've only seen it once, I think. It was a long time ago, so I probably remember none of it. But I've been thinking a lot about Zodiac lately, and I feel like when we got to that Jude Law being obsessive and like falling into the case, like I got that sort of vibe from it. And then it was sort of reinforced when we watched that wonderful, wonderful behind the scenes making of featurette on the Blu-ray, which we can talk about in a little bit. They mentioned Fincher in there, too, about Rooney Mara working with Fincher there. And I was just like, oh, right. I'm glad that there's this, even if the movie itself isn't Fincher-esque, which I think it is, but even like with that aside, that there's this connection and there's just, like this presence, there's this like mentality of like these two directors, both really good at what they do and like different takes on the same topic or idea. Yeah, I wonder if that was subconsciously like bleeding over in any kind of way where Fincher was just on the mind of Sonnenberg at the time. And one person I don't think we mentioned is Jude Law's wife. Vanessa Shaw. Oh, yeah. yeah, Vanessa yeah. Shaw. So I, I don't see her pop up that often. And in this, she gives one of the performances I feel like the mother-in-law where it's just all in the look and the reaction and everything and, the, and her temperament and stuff. And I don't know. I mean, she, she doesn't really have all that much to do here but like when Rooney Mara first shows up and she needs to talk to Jude Law like his wife's got this look on his face like this is one of your patients like just like kind of mortified and then when Jude Law comes home and she find she has the note that Catherine or the pictures that Catherine Zeta Jones sent to her and then she just like slaps him in the face immediately and all that like it's just she's really intense in these bursts and it just seems like that must have been difficult uh, as an actor just having to give so much in so little time. And I feel like the actors doing that in this movie are doing it really well. And she's, like, forgotten about, basically. Like, she becomes, like, she's the only character not centrally involved in a twist. So the movie's like, oh, we can we can just not worry about her, really. But I agree, she's very good. And I wish we got, I wish we got more. I don't know how you work her in more, but I wish we got yeah. more of her. Actually, I do know how you do, is that you take the first half of the movie and you only show us about half of the... Uh, Rooney Mara stuff. Don't make us think the movie's about her. And you show us a little more of her, you know, being depressed and almost running into the, or like running herself into the wall. And then you spend the rest of that time with Jude Law as an everyman. You think, and you start thinking, how are these two movies going to come together? And then you have more scenes of what he, might, what he's going to lose in the second half of the movie. And I think, I think that that would give you a little more time with him because I agree. She's that bit, that bit where she comes over, or he comes over to her when she's seen the pictures and thinks he's had an affair with. 
Rooney Mara and, and she slaps him as he arrives at her is shocking and, and surprising and, and great. And I would love to, to to know how they, if that was scripted or if that's something she and Soderbergh cooked up or if they, if Jude Law knew that slap was coming right then or like I'm, that felt like real human behavior in that moment. Yeah, that comes to mind of something I didn't feel a lot of in this, which is that improvish kind of playfulness that we got in the last, like, I feel that we got in the last few movies. Like, I don't know that there was much room to improvise here necessarily, but that does feel like a, a real moment, you know? Like, it's just like, I'm going to come in, we're going to yeah. play this, and she's just going to, you know, slap you whenever she wants to. And <laughs> the immediacy of it and then just sort of awkwardness of it makes it play very realistically. One thing I noticed about this movie, and I don't think it... I'm not sure that it actually works like this, but when we watched Solaris, which I know that Tobin does not love, we talked about before we started recording, I liked that movie a lot because I was like, oh, it's a ghost story. And I'm not just saying a ghost story because Rooney Mara was in A Ghost Story, eating an entire pie this year, which is great. But this early on, we have her sleepwalking, and we hear about that guy is at the prison, that Haitian guy, and Jude Law's talking about ghosts and talking about Haitians seeing their father and everything. And I wonder if, and I tried to watch it like this and it didn't really work, but I think maybe toward the end, like, is this kind of sort of in a way like a ghost story, like things that aren't there that actually are there? Would that make you like the movie more? Like, I don't know. Like, I think that's why Solaris worked for me, because I watched it with that specific mentality in mind. But like here, it kind of sort of works, or am I crazy? Well, it's interesting. You guys both like this movie better having seen it a second time. But I remembered none of it. Yeah, but in your bones, you didn't remember that Maybe. it became more his movie than I don't know. I don't think so. Huh, huh. I have a remarkable ability to forget everything about a movie <laughs> almost immediately. I, I did remember it, Tobin, that it does become his movie. I just didn't remember like how soon. Like I thought it was much later and, and more of a defining twist of the film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and do you and do you think that that made it easier to deal with the first part of the movie? Yeah, I could see that being possible. Yeah, I don't think Joey. I don't see this as a as a ghost story or or anything. I mean, it's kind of a horror movie to a degree. You know, she goes a little Lady Macbeth at one point in this. But like, do you, but do you see where I'm like? Do you see where like it kind of sort of could be, or am I completely off base? Well, I mean, she is sort of playing like a somnambulist role at times, right? When she's sleepwalking and stuff or in a daze or her life is, you know, that is part of the character's front or whatever. That's what she's, the the airs that she's putting on are are of that depression and everything like that. Uh, So, I mean, I don't, I don't think that she's like actually a ghost or anything like that, but I do see sort of like influences from thrillers where, you know, like the haunting, where it's like, there isn't really a ghost and someone is just being told that there's a haunting and it's not real, but it drives that person crazy. And, you know, that sort of stuff is being invoked here in this movie, just that the history of these types of films, I think, is coming through. And I think on a sort of related note, maybe kind of in a way, is the movie opens with the blood on the ground, right? And then we see the boat. And then later in the movie, we see her walk by that window and see the boat. And we're like, "Uh oh, that scene's coming up. And then we see them in the apartment and we know to some extent what's going to happen. We don't know necessarily what exactly is going to happen, but we know that somebody's going to get hurt, bleed on the ground, maybe die. And yet somehow between the score and the way it's shot and the way like you, you don't quite know what's going on it still is like it made me jump like you sort of know what's happening at least i I don't know about you guys but like i was still caught off guard by like how 
sudden and quick. And then, like, later we find out that that was all planned, that that wasn't actually a side effect or whatever. But, like, that seemed like the weight of that shot in that sort of horror sense, I guess, it really worked for me. Yeah, that was very effective. I, I agree. And I and I think that scene to scene, there's some there's some very effective stuff. I think it's very interesting that the scenes for me that work the best with Rooney Mara are the ones where she's sleepwalking. <laughs> But I do, I totally agree on a shot to shot and even sort of a macro structure level. It's a, it's a fascinating movie and very effective, whether it's playing more to horror or more to noir or more to legal thriller or all all these things that I love. (laughs) And maybe part of it is, oh God, I I don't want to say that I want Soderbergh to choose one or the other because I like that he can juggle all this stuff. I guess it's just stick with the compliment. Yes, that scene was really effective, I thought. If you want to see Rooney Morrow sleepwalk in a horror film, watch the Nightmare on Elm Street remake that she's in, which... Oh, yeah? Isn't that bad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Worth checking out. I thought it was kind of uh, interesting how this movie opens with that extremely long shot, like zooming into the window of the rich apartment, and then it like cuts to the boat and blood and the the sort of the murder scene and then at the very end it zooms out from the mental hospital from the window all the way out so it like bookends with these like incredibly long shots which is a nod to psycho too the opening of psycho as as the camera pans across is it phoenix that they are or i forget where and then and then zooms and then pushes in through the window into the marion cranes not her apartment but wherever she's having the affair with the guy or the having her relationship with the guy that that that's immediately what i thought of here and then that should have been a tip-off that there was like about what, what, what was coming you know and then and that's what i mean about he's so smart about this he's so like uh, he's pushing all that that is my favorite movie when i'm asked what my favorite movies i say psycho and there's so much that i want to work in here maybe that's why i get more agitated about this movie than you guys do is because it is so close to something that i would love it's interesting because psycho starts off like fun and playful right and then it gets scary and real real quick and then it becomes a movie kind of like this where it's like this what happened you know investigating like normal people investigating what's going on kind of thing yeah it's it's just not quite as loose i guess or fun or play it just doesn't have that edge to the tone it's a little too sinister maybe the thing i find interesting about that opening with you know the crime scene as it were is uh joey recently we were on the hoffman podcast for before the devil knows i was just thinking i was about to say it but yeah yep go ahead yeah and you know i kind of agreed with what you were saying there you remarked how like that movie opens with the incident like the crime and then we backtrack a couple days up to that point and everything sort of reconverges there a few times in the film and you know it doesn't really work in that sense because we're given way too much information i feel here we're just given just enough to know that something went down but we're not shown who's involved and i think that's what keeps it together by the time we are re-arriving at this moment in time it's pretty fresh you know what i'm saying like we know something's gonna go down but now we know the players involved like little by little we recognize the boat and then you know i call that Chekhov's boat Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) so yeah i think it worked in that regard a lot better than in other films yeah, I agree. I, I was thinking the same thing about how effective it is, because I don't normally like that. Like I was saying on the PSL of Hoffman episode, which came out a few months ago, as you're listening to this, dear listener. But it usually, like, it's like, we know... I think what's smart about this, to say this in a different way, I think what's smart about this is that we see that something happens, but we don't know what that is. We don't see Rooney Mara stab Channing Tatum in the opening scene. We just see the aftermath of it. 
And so we know that there is an incident, but we don't know what that is. And I think that's so effective. Like I said on the Hoffman podcast, I'll say again here, I really, really hate when a movie to grab your attention shows you something like an action in the opening scene that eventually we circle back to, because usually that is not effective. Here, it's just like this hint that like, oh, something bad happened. But to this point in the movie, we haven't seen a person. So we don't know who these people are. We don't know what the movie's about. We don't know anything about anything. And the fact that it's this like foreboding of terror, that I think is why it works as well as it does. That's an interesting point that it that it's is a tease is or it's a promise that like a certain mood a certain some the the what we're seeing is the aftermath of the act and just a glimpse of it enough to give us a sense of something bad's coming and i'm trying to imagine now if the movie cut from that opening to maybe Jude Law at the park with his kid and his wife shows up. Just one simple domestic scene and then back in, and then into the Rooney Mara stuff. And when I'm like, oh my God, did he kill her? Is this going to, you know, I just, I'm sort of wondering about that. But you're right. There's, there's a, a lovely way in which this gestures at that kind of a, you're, maybe, maybe what it does is it buys us the next, you know, half an hour of, of non-violence in the movie with the sort of promise that, oh, this is a kind of movie where blood gets shed. So that's always linked in the back of our minds because isn't that kind of i'm not sure exactly what i'm trying to reference here but maybe you know like those like the old pulp novels or something that like there's like that hint of sex or the hint of violence and like you know they they, they spice up the cover to make it look like, yeah, like this totally. really sexy or violent thing and then the story's not about that at all and i think that's to an extent what's happening here i mean we do get the payoff eventually but i think you're right that it's like we're teased with enough that like as normal and mundane and routine as all of this seems, something in one of these characters' lives is about to go terribly, terribly wrong. And actually, while we're talking about other movies, Mike, you know what other movie I thought of? And I bet I bet you thought of the same thing. I was thinking of Exposed, the Keanu movie, <laughs> especially when Rooney was about to, supposedly about to kill herself on the subway car. You know, again, it's like this cop, like, being involved in this, like, narrative that he has no idea he's a part of. You know what I mean? Like, it's this weird way that, you know, people live their lives or what have you. It's like, not that Exposed is a good film. I'm just going to, you know, don't get me wrong, okay? <laughs> yeah. It could have been. Yeah. It could have been. It, but that's the thing. Like, we kept saying, like, with a few moves and tweaks, like, you don't need to do much to make this work, like, really, really well. The main character, like, kind of blocking I was thinking out... about, about the perception, like, the way that they view the world, like, these right. cops in both ones, like, part of this narrative that they don't see. Yeah, plus that character was actually crazy and did hallucinate something while she committed a murder, right? Like, this, that movie was like, if this was for real, and not faking it. And even with a few tweaks, I think we were saying on that episode, like, it could have been better. Like, even cut out the Keanu stuff and just focus on this girl with these visions and what are what triggered them, and then what was, you know, what happened in her past that we eventually find out caused all this trauma. So maybe with less characters. Two other things I have real quick about this movie before I want to talk about something else. I don't know why this is the date, the cutoff date on IMDb, but it said to 2005, there had been 68 documented cases of homicidal sleepwalking, which is what we think this movie is, but actually... It's not. It's just straight-up homicide. But that's kind of terrifying that 68 people have killed someone in their sleep. That's scary. Yeah, that is scary. Now, is that that's people, like, on, like, antidepressant medication or just people in general? No, that... I think it's just people in sleep for one form or another, whether it's... Right, like Step know, Brothers, the movie Step Brothers, like, they're just sleepwalkers. The Channing Tatum role 
Soderbergh considered giving it to Justin Timberlake, but went with Channing Tatum instead. Again, that's a uh, another sort of Fincher connection, the yeah, social Fincher network, which, yeah. which Rooney Mara is also in. Right. Um, there's, there's a lot of ties over there. And then the last thing that I had from IMDb was that Soderbergh said that one of his biggest influences making this movie was the work of Adrian oh, Lyne. yes, Adrian Lyne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine and a half weeks. Especially Fatal Attraction, he says. Right, right. He did Unfaithful and yeah, yeah, yeah. That he, he does sort of like big erotic thrillers of the 80s and 90s, like like those three. That's an interesting, interesting connection. I you know, one of the things that in line with that, one of the things we've, I've talked about before is Soderbergh's ability to shoot intimacy, whether it's actual sex scenes or like the, the really steamy stuff leading up to the sex scene in, in Out of Sight or, you know, all the, the way he's able to sort of have a new take on that, even if the movie is really not very good, like Full Frontal. <laughs> Blurry Catherine Keener, I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that I think that there, if I, as I recall, two sex scenes in the movie between uh, Rooney Mara and Channing Tatum. One where she's staring at the ceiling, where and the first time we see it, we think it's because she's depressed, and the second time we realize it's because she hates him and is waiting, waiting to kill him. But there's a, a fascinating thing he does where the scene starts with her point of view, with a shot up the wall to the ceiling. But instead of being handheld and the camera moving at all, it's locked off completely. And so you can't even tell it's a moving person's POV. So then when it cuts to the two of them, and you hear them having sex, then it cuts to the two of them and you see that she's just staring up at the ceiling. It's so eerie and off-putting that the POV was not moving at all. It was completely static. And you get the sense, as I say, the first time through, which I thought was really effective, that she's just completely out of her body at that point. Like she's either because she's, I don't remember, don't remember if she's on the drugs at that point or if she's just depressed, but you get the sense that she is sort of not a party to things there. And then later we learn, you know, we see it again and we learn that that wasn't the case. Then she gets on one of the drugs and it, ramps up her sex drive and there's there's a one take sex scene that uh, that's like that, porn star sex yeah yeah but it's so artfully done and ends on Channing Tatum's face or like zooms up toward them as she's on top of him and it's just a one like a one shot gestural sex scene that's much more explicit than the other one but I think captures that moment so beautifully I think and so differently the camera's so fluid and it's all one shot he's not breaking it up and she's so much more in control and excited by it and those scenes I think worked really well I was less enamored with those more arch sort of lesbian sex between Rudy Mara and Catherine Zeta-Jones later on, just because it felt a little more, more performative to me. But maybe that was the point in those scenes. But I thought those first two worked really, really well for him. Well, I think one other shot that I can think of that worked well was when they show her seduction of Catherine Zeta-Jones and they show her laying on the couch and she just very slightly hikes her skirt up, like barely. Yes, yes. And like, right. it's just like that hint. And you're like, oh, like that's like all that, like that was the moment where she hooked Catherine Zeta-Jones. Like that is, whether it's the acting, whether it's the editing, whether it's whatever it is, that I was just like, oh, that's like that's sexy, you know, like like nothing. There's no nudity. Like I don't even know if you see me, you know, like it's, it's just barely like it's just a little yeah, bit yeah. up, and it's just like, oh, that's the moment where regardless of who you are, you're gonna fall in love with Rooney Mara because she's in full seduction mode right there. I really enjoyed that flashback moment. It, it was sort of like the oceans moment where like the plan is revealed and you see behind the behind the scenes everything that was really going on. And I, I feel like it was handled a little differently than Soderbergh usually does. Like it just something overall about this movie just feels a little less familiar to me about Soderbergh. Like he's using less tricks maybe or he's trying out new techniques possibly that I just can't quite 
see, but I feel it in this flashback thing because it's very, it's like long compared to what he usually does. You know, like we see that whole scene of Channing Tatum getting arrested and then we see her going to therapy and meeting, like there's a lot of scenes in this flashback and stuff and it goes on for a while and it's not even the conclusion of the movie. Like the movie, <laughs> like the movie goes on from there where they, they set up Catherine Zeta-Jones and then he ultimately sets her up to spend the rest of her times not behind a prison bar, but certainly behind um, bars of the institution. And at the very end of the movie where, like, I I wrote down, like, is it convenient? Like, is it too convenient that she confesses all of her crimes when we as the audience so clearly know that she's wearing a wire? And, like, yeah, it's too convenient, but, like, is it satisfying? Like, also, yes. There's something about that final scene where, like, we know what's happening. We know it's, like, the biggest cliche in terms of anything with, like, cops or legality or whatever, and yet... I don't mind it because it's just it's it's that like reveal like of course she's wearing a wire like but like why else would Catherine Jones be like remember that time that you murdered your husband because I told you it's just like all this like confessing everything in 45 seconds it's like oh come on I don't know why this is all satisfying to me but it is yeah no it is it's you're wanting to see people who are the bad guys in your movie get their comeuppance you're wanting to see Jude Law come out on top you're wanting to see it all sort of unravel is not the right word but the knot to be untied right the hole that he's dug himself into for him to get out of and there's just something satisfying about that I mean there's a reason that these shows these as you were saying before the police procedurals on the CBS lineup every night right for like NCSIS CSIS or whatever yeah for like the last like 20 years right right or like the number one movies in the, or shows or in the evening or whatever whatever it is that like that's the dopamine hit these shows deliver right is that they'll get a confession somebody wear a wire that they'll tie everything up and that the bad guys will get sent away and the good guys will come out on top and they'll say a one-liner and then we'll cut to next week's episode and i think that that's it's hitting some of the same things it's just he's such a much or the film medium and soderbergh's craft and talent allow him to be much more canny with it and he's working with with actors who are sort of i don't know he, he He's able to elevate that material. But I think it's, for me anyway, it's hitting some of the same sort of, you know, receptors in my brain. One other thing it did for me was I was waiting for the wire to show up. I forgot, like, I thought Jude Law was going to wear the wire and get Catherine Zeta-Jones' confession. And I was like, I thought he wore the wire in this movie. It's just something I remembered that never happened. And so I was like, where does that come in? When's it coming to play? And so I feel like it's the type of movie where you expect someone to be wearing a wire, but I wasn't really, you know, you don't necessarily expect it to be her or her to be complicit necessarily at the end there. And so I feel like it works because it is kind of a bit of a payoff in and of itself and and it's also like it's not like you're wearing a wire like she lightly touches the back of her neck or her lower back and feels like the little battery pack and we barely see it under the shirt and stuff so it's of the briefest moments I feel so they get away with it. Do either of you have anything else to say about this movie before we talk briefly about the behind the scenes featurette? Only to say that can you imagine being the marketing department given this movie to market? It's called Side Effects, and yes, it is in some ways about the pharmaceutical industry, and it is a thriller, but how do you convey what the movie is when the best part of it is the second half once you know what the twist is? I don't remember the marketing, but I would have been sort of scratching my head for weeks trying to figure out how to sort of sell this to people. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's the only other thing in, in my notes. Yeah, I'd like to go and watch some trailers after recording this now, because it feels like 
like one of those movies you sell just on the names of the people in it and the director, like from Steven Soderbergh, from Jude Law, from Catherine Zeta-Jones, you know, Channing Tatum, from Magic Mike's. It's almost like they're coming off of that nice hit and, you know, maybe they're trying to coast a little on this one. But you're right, Tobin, like this isn't, you have to misdirect them in the trailer to get them to see this movie. Or you just have to market it as the Jude Law movie instead. And then they get to the movie and they're like, when is it going to be the Jude Law movie? It's a tough one. Absolutely. I don't know how this was marketed. The budget, according to Google, was $30 million. It made 32 domestic and then another 31 worldwide, which is surprising. That there's you know, normally the stuff that does as well worldwide or does better or whatever, I, I tend to think is action. Yeah, but that's tiny. Thir- $30 million worldwide is for a movie with Rooney Mara, Channing Tatum, Catherine Zeta Jones, and Jude Law. That's not much. I mean, I'm glad it doubled its money, but that's that's not a lot of money. I also don't think, I mean, like, Rooney Mara is now a bigger star, but I think at that point she'd only been in a few things. So it's not like, I don't think you're there. No, well, she'd been in, she'd been in the Social Network movie. and Dragon network. Tattoo. Yeah, Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jude Law is a huge star in, in, you know, in the UK. Who knows? People are big and strange people. Maybe like Catherine Zeta Jones is big in Germany or something. Like, who, who knows? She should be big everywhere. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. She's that's great. True. Oh, and this is also the third time that he's worked with her, too. We should call her out a little bit as an MVP here. She's done great work with Soderbergh when she's been given these great parts. And here she's given a part that she has. She has to kind of play three different characters in one character and make it all believable as one person. And she has a screen presence that just does not get enough use. I really, really enjoyed her in this movie. And I think that in a part that doesn't allow her much to do, like she has to be sort of more functional to the plot than she is sort of a a living, breathing character. And yet she's able to sort of give it all this presence and it should be laughable what happens to her or like what the changes we are expected to accept in her character and yet i i was with her i (laughs) i think she's pretty great in this movie well i think you said it before like she plays it campy especially toward the end right which i think really really works yeah it was smart yeah Speaking of campy, though, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm trying to transition to this featurette that I love. All you said was make sure you watch the behind the scenes feature on the DVD. And I said, all right. And I had no idea what to expect. And it is basically a grindhouse level, you know, shot and chopped and voiceover talking about Oscar loser Rooney Mara in a film with Oscar loser Jude Law and like can you believe that these beautiful people like this like surprisingly attractive or whatever or unnaturally attractive cast of people had to work four hours in a row it's like this weird I can't find it online at least it's not on YouTube as far as I can see if, if that was how they marketed the movie it would have made like hundreds of millions of dollars because it's or <laughs> I mean maybe maybe not maybe it's just specifically to like people like us but like it's so weird and so wonderful. And, you know, Fletcher Munson, Soderbergh's character from Schizopolis or whatever, yes, gets yes. a shout out here as like the director or the writer or something. Like, Yeah, he's credited as the director. And Catherine Zeta-Jones is credited as the cinematographer, which I thought was great. Amazing. It's the weirdest little three minute thing that says nothing about the movie, but like everything about Soderbergh kind of. Yeah, yeah. It would be worth like this is the this is the only this is as close as we've had to a Schizopolis sequel, this little three minute thing. And if it would be worth it if you find a three dollar DVD of this at some like sale somewhere, yard sale or whatever, get it just for this three minute short. I think that this is I think this is pretty fun. Yeah, Joey, you're totally onto something with that grindhouse feel to it. It feels like Soderbergh like missed out on doing a trailer for Grindhouse and like oh my God. really, really wanted to somehow be involved and it's just like however many it's a few years after that came out so like I don't know why he's 
just getting around to it now, but it's fantastic. I just love that retro, dingy, you know, style when the film is all scratched up and everything, and him being sort of like a connoisseur of different film styles and all that kind of thing. Like, it's just cool to just see him do something wacky and, and wild and just like, you know, almost like a home movie or something. It's just so dumb that it's wonderful. Like, it's so unexpected. Because, like, on the DVD, like, on the menu, it just says, like, behind-the-scenes featurette or something. It's just, well, what's this going to be? And then it's just, like, from the get-go, I was, like, cracking up, like, laughing out loud. It's just so wonderful. And maybe it plays better to us having gone through Soderbergh all along, like, true Soderbergh heads. Maybe that's the true audience for this movie. But I think anybody else would find it pretty, (laughs) pretty, like, whacked out and kind of off-kilter charming. And it's the perfect length. Like, if it went on any longer. But this, it just, it knows what the joke is and just sort of lays into it. And yeah, I, I, I thought that was fun. And it's also very prescient and says, like, star of the future, Channing Tatum. Like, yep, got that one right. Did you guys watch the fake commercials for the drugs in this movie by any chance? No. They are frighteningly identical to what you would just find, you know, on television every day. And it's just kind of scary how how they nailed it. How like anyone can kind of come up with with this bullshit, I guess. Um, but but it also kind of feels like as they're listing the side effects, like the the tone of the commercials start to sort of get a little darker too it feels like yeah i don't know it almost feels like subliminally he's trying to say like these are tricks these commercials do those commercials end with like pitching the movie or is it purely no 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 yeah so it's purely you know for like i think we get a glimpse of one of the commercials in the movie on the website it's like the entire one of that and then there's like a rival drug i guess or one for children that they, they just do you know as if it was a real product I like that. That's cool. But yeah, so so Tobin, where do you have this in your rankings? You said bottom half, I think, but... Yeah, I have it at number 17. That's not terrible. I mean, he's made a lot of really good movies. Yeah, I mean, the things the things immediately below it are King of the Hill, The Two Chays, Solaris, the two Grey's Anatomy type movies, The Underneath. I, I was surprised that you put it above Sex, Lies, and Videotapes since you'd been such a champion of that. That so was close. It was close for me. That's the one that I think, I'm thinking about. I like it more than Solaris, and I like it more than Schizopolis because I only saw that once. It's like 10 and 11 are super, super close. I know that we have too many other things to do, and I also don't want to do this, but I kind of want to like start this again when we finish. You know what I mean? And, be like, and see like where he kind of well, came from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's true that that for me, there's a whole series like from numbers six through nine, like Contagion, Haywire, Magic Mike and Oceans 12 could kind of swim back and forth in those numbers for me. Like it's kind of like there's a tier there. And I felt a little bit like that with this, like this. I put this after Kafka and the girlfriend experience, but I could see it moving up there a little bit. I don't like it as well as I like Bubble, but that's just me. I know. So, yeah, it's like I say, if I'm remembering more of the second half, I like it better and would move it higher. If I'm remembering more of the first half or thinking about what the movie could have been, it sort of sinks lower. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where it is. I still give it three and a half stars. Like, it's not a terrible movie. It's not hard to sit through. It's just, yeah, it's just, I don't, I just don't think it's all that it could have been. All right, I'm going to put Sex Lies ahead of it. Oh, good. Thank you. You convinced me. I haven't scored mine yet, but I, mean, I think it's hovering somewhere around like 12 or 13 around that zone. That was around Che and Che Part. That's about right. Che Part 1, Ocean's 12. But I'm weird. I love Kafka, so that's at number 13 for me right now. In front of traffic, mind you. 
Yeah, that is wild. Although Kafka, it's funny for me because Kafka is, even though it's at 15 for me, feels like it's higher than I ever would have thought it would be. Like I continue to have, that's that's a rediscovery for me on this journey of uh, of cinemakers, how much I sort of think back to Kafka and am, am sort of drawn to it. I, I would really love him to do his recut of it or whatever he, he's talked about in the past and like release it on Criterion or something. I, I would be, I'd be, I'd be all over that. Well, we only have two more movies left. We have Behind the Candelabra, which we'll do next week. And then we have two episodes we're going to cover. The Nick, each season gets an episode. Not sure how we're going to talk about that. I don't even know if I'm going to take notes on those episodes, but I'll just sort of watch it and we can discuss it. And then there's a couple years off where he didn't really shoot anything. And then he comes back for Logan Lucky, which we will capture in this initial run of Cinemakers. And then maybe by the time this is released, you know, stuff like Mosaic and things will be out. So, you know, we have a couple more movies, not too many more. As we're looking at it right now, there's only two more but you know he's back it seems like he's back in like full production mode now so by the time that these wrap up by the time that we release the last episode sometime in april like there might be a couple more things for us to talk about so yeah in the space of the release of these episodes of all of cinemakers he will have released two or three feature length things or series length things i mean (laughs) he is completely back after not doing a movie for four years it's remarkable and then what's up with like this secret elvis documentary that he was involved in as well wasn't there something about an Elvis documentary? Oh, I sent you. I sent you that. Yeah, I don't think. I think he just produced it or All right, something. But still, you know. Is that his Riley Keough connection? Is that what? Oh, that's there you go. I started following her on Instagram recently, and it is a great decision. She is so delightful and so pretty. I love Riley Keough. <laughs> I'm bummed that we don't get to talk about the Girlfriend Experience TV show, but I'm still going to watch it because he just produced that, right? That she, that he, yeah. he didn't shoot that. No, no, no. Pseudonym. He's talked about his work on that show has been to, like, he looks at the scripts, he'll maybe give a note, he looks at the episodes, but he basically just goes to bat for the filmmakers and, and gets them the, the space and the money they need to make their show. And then so. whines about it when it's not broadcast in the right aspect ratio. Rightfully. Yeah, rightfully so. Thank you very much. I'm just, I just think it's funny. Any other last thoughts about uh, side effects before we wrap up for this week? Yes, one thing, if because I am maybe still scratching my head over this movie a little bit, like as you're hearing this, if those those of you who have seen and have opinions about this, please do get in touch with us and tell us what you thought. Oh yeah, we have an email. Yeah, straighten straighten me out on this movie, you know. Cinemakers at gageclub.me. Email us, let us know what you think. Or, you know, at gageclubpod on Twitter if you if you don't want to send an entire email, if that's too much work, just tweet at us and just say thumbs up emoji or thumbs down emoji. I guess all I want to say is like, Tobin, I think it's totally fine that you don't like this movie. Um, you don't <laughs> oh, have to like this movie. Like there's no you know what I'm saying? It's not on the box. Yeah, like yeah. you need to like this movie. I just happen to really like it. People give it a shot. Give it a shot. You know, give it it's Soderbergh. So like give it a shot people have done stuff like this worse so you know it's kind of like oh yeah watch, for sure watch Soderbergh do it or you want to see someone do it better okay go watch Hitchcock or something like that so there's your choices you know what you've convinced me to do I'm going to take this out of the box of shame and put it back on my shelf yes my final thought about it is that I don't love this, but I like it enough. Like, I don't love it enough to, like, that really truly defend it, but, like, I like it enough that I will watch it again. I look forward to watching it again for Magic Mike's, even though he's, even though Channing Tatum is not in it very much. I want to see this again. I, I don't like it enough to defend it. It's, it's like a very, very small gap there between, like, yeah. really liking it and not liking it enough to defend it. But that's where this movie falls. So that is that.
Well, to see all the episodes or to hear all the episodes that we have talked about and that we've ranked that Soderbergh has directed, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. You can find all the episodes of this show. You can find all the episodes of Tobin and Mike's new shows, which are now out. You can find all the other shows on our network, everything you could possibly want in terms of what we do, at least. Cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter. Straighten Tobin's brain out. Email us, cinemakers, at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think of this movie or the podcast or Soderbergh or whatever. You are four months into the future as we're recording this, so you know so much more about things than we do. (laughs) So maybe some crazy stuff. Maybe there's a side effects, too, coming. Who knows? Let us know. Cinemakers at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. <laughs>